Are you constantly on the go? The newly updated Jesus Calling mobile app makes it easy to feel God's presence wherever you are. Read devotions and scriptures, purchase products, take notes, and so much more. The app is available for purchase on both Apple and Android. Download it today. When you give whatever your circumstance is to God, He won't just heal you or fix you, but he'll actually use that then for a testimony to glorify him and to help other people. And that's really been my story on this journey. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Most of us can recall times in our lives where we felt lost, confused, or unsure of how to move forward. It can be easy to shy away from those moments, to hide them and put on a smile, to pretend as if our road has always been an easy one. But what if, instead of striving for perfection around every corner, we stop and lean into those uncomfortable moments? What would happen if we looked at our moments of feeling lost and vulnerable as opportunities to become closer to God, to strengthen our faith and use these stories as testimony? Our guests this week explore these questions as they share their stories of faith and healing. Actors Carlos and Alexa Pinavega share the honest and vulnerable moments that strengthened their relationship with God and taught them the lessons that would inform the rest of their lives. Michael Phillips grew up in Baltimore and was told from an early age that he would not become the lawyer he dreamed to be. As administrators, teachers, and principals told him he would inevitably end up incarcerated, Michael fought a deficit narrative that hung over him for much of his young life. Let's start with Carlos and Alexa's story. Well, my name is Carlos Penavega. I'm an actor and also a musician. Uh, I'm in a band called Big Time Rush, and we are currently doing our thing. I'm Alexa Penavega. I am an actress, I'm a mom, and now we can put under our belts, we're writers, we're authors. I had just come off a tour where I was just just to preface, I was, I've always been a relationship guy. Like I always had to be in a relationship, but this summer I was not in a relationship. My girlfriend, I had broken up long-term girlfriend and I had a very, um, for me, it was wild for most people. They'd say tame, but I had a very wild summer on tour with my band, um, doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. And I came home and I was in a very, uh, dark, dark, dark place. And I called up my friend, who's now our mutual best friend, Andrew. I said, hey, Andrew, I was like, why are you so happy? I, I literally just asked him and he, took, and he turned around and he was like, oh, well, I got Jesus in my life. And before he could finish Jesus, I hung up the phone. I was like, I don't need to hear that. And a couple more days go by and I call him and I say, okay, I'm sorry, I hung up, tell me more. And he says, well, you know, Jesus, this, this. And I, I was kind of hesitant, but I said, all right, well, well, what do I do? And he goes, well, maybe just come to church with me on Sunday. So I show up to church and it was this little black church in Inglewood. You know, all the all the old ladies with the big hats. I was like, this is crazy, this is awesome. The music was amazing. They, you know, they, they were singing gospel, they were clapping their hands and I was hooked. And the bishop comes up and he preaches this sermon and he was like, when I was 23, and I was like, I'm 23. And he preaches this whole sermon to me and it was literally everything that I'd been doing in my life. He had been doing it in his life before he met Christ and I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty awesome. Like, are you speaking to me? So I'm now on this Jesus high and I want more. So Andrew invites me to his Bible study, which is that Thursday. 
which so happens to be the same Bible study that he had invited Alexa to. At that point, um, I'd recently gone through a divorce um, and I also was, you know, taking roles that I probably shouldn't have been taking. I was just in, no, I don't want to say my rock bottom, but I just wasn't in a place that I wanted to be in. And I was really pursuing that deeper relationship with God. Um, I grew up semi-Christian, but the craving that there was something deeper was there. And like, I just knew that I wanted to see God or to like experience God on that next level. I didn't want to have this surface level relationship with him anymore. Um, so when Andrew invited me to Bible study, which by the way, he had been inviting me forever. I finally was just like, yes, now is the time I'm ready to go. A week later, we ended up hanging out together again. We had some great conversation and then we spent the rest of the day together. And I, and I told myself, I was like, I'm going to, I, I'm going to marry this girl. Like, I feel it. I feel it. And the rest is history. We, 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 you know, got married seven or eight months later. And uh, a year after that, we had our first child. So I had this eating disorder that really took over my life for a long period of time, over six years. Um, and it was this long battle of, I knew I didn't want it. I didn't want anybody to find out about it because I was so ashamed that this is what I was doing. And yet it was the one thing I really felt in control of in my life and that I had a grasp on, which you don't at all when you have an eating disorder, you just think that you do. So it just stuck with me and I remember this like one specific moment, I was just really praying. I'm reading a Bible all the while, like binging and purging. And I'm just like, God, take this away from me. But as I started to read the word and read what God actually said about me and talks about our temple and how we're supposed to take care of our temple and that being our body and just like how much God loved me, the word became so real in my life that one day I woke up and it was just gone. And it wasn't just gone like, oh, I stopped it. But like, I knew God had like pulled it out of my life and I couldn't explain it other than it was like having a roommate just move out suddenly and they weren't there anymore. And I know it might not be that way for everybody, but that was my experience. experience. It literally felt like this miracle that occurred in my life. How do we keep how do we keep our faith growing and alive in our family today, my angel? Oh man, how do we do that? Well, one, uh, we, 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 we really try and, and take moments to pray together. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's for two minutes before I go on stage. Yeah. It's just like, as I'm doing my hair to go on stage, she's like, we're gonna sit and we're gonna pray right now. And it's like, okay, let's do it. Well, we try to pray over any and all situations. It's not just like this, like it's great when you can have those private moments to like sit down for 30 minutes and you have your prayer time. But we try to keep that conversation going. It's like the pray, pray without ceasing. Like we really want that constant communication with God. And I feel like we do that. We have come to a place where we do that well in our family, yeah. where whenever something's going on, we pray about it. So my friend's father um, bought, I don't know, I would say, maybe 500 Jesus Calling books. The small little one. And um, he put little stickers on them um, with his face and like, just like a God bless, God bless you or something on there. And he would keep them in the trunk of his car. 
so that whenever he felt like somebody needed a Jesus Calling book, he would give them yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and then he ended up passing away, but his son was left with all these Jesus Calling books. So. And it's funny because if you know his son, you wouldn't expect his son to be somebody that was passing out these Jesus Calling books, but he did. He would he started passing them out to all of his friends. And then I was actually gifted a, a Jesus Calling book from a friend of a friend because he was like, you're gonna love this book. And then years later, I ended up meeting Jonathan and he was telling me the story and I'm like, Wait, Johnny, that was your dad? Yeah, we, we like opened the back and I had this sticker I'm like, in the book. I have a book from him. And then he just started crying and I'm like tearing up because literally his book, his dad's book had made it all the way to me. Okay, so Alexa and I are on a plane headed somewhere and I get a call on my phone. And it's my manager and he's like, hey, I got this opportunity, Dancing with the Stars. First, I was like, oh, I don't know if it's such a good idea. Um, and Alexa goes, hey, I, I you know, have a call. One second, I'm like, oh, no problem. So I, I finished my call, she finished her call, and she's like, who was that? I was like, oh, it was manager. He said, you know, Dancing with the Stars. And she goes, you're kidding me. I go, what do you mean? She said, I just got a, I just got off with my manager and they offered me Dancing with the Stars. Both of us look at each other and I was like, oh. That's interesting. We're supposed to compete against each other to see who the better dancer is. Oh, I was girl. like, this is a great idea. Um, and we decided on that plane to actually do it without knowing what it entailed or, or you know, how impactful it actually ended up being. So we started the show and every week you kind of get to decide what you want to talk about. You know, whether it's your marriage, whether it's, a, a you know, your, your family or a friend or a personal thing. But, you know, America wants to know a little more about you every single week. So um, we had the opportunity one week to, you know, talk about our testimony. And, you know, I'd gone through a, like a, you know, a whole, you know, coming to Jesus moment, as they say. And um, I did uh, a Viennese waltz to, um, um, to an, an acapella version of Amazing Grace. And I kind of just laid it all out on the line. And it was very, um, it was very scary at first because, you know, it, I'd never really talked about God in my life to on that level like, on, 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 on that level you know publicly like that and man the response that we got was incredible and Alexa did the same and she opened up about a lot of things about her faith and about her eating disorder and all this stuff and it was just so cool to see God use our testimony yeah. on that level to really impact the world when you jump into being somebody of faith or when you jump into Christianity, I feel like a lot of times it's painted as like, your life is going to be so perfect after you become a Christian. Um, and what actually happened for us was like, life actually got way harder when we became Christians, but everything was more peaceful and everything made more sense to us. Like we actually felt more complete. So even though it was harder because it is a harder path to take, nothing, nothing in this world is really set up to have like a happy family, a happy marriage, um, to like have an easy road and a walk with God. Like the, the world is really set up in this like divided place, especially right now. So I, we really felt like we need to be raw and honest and show what it actually looks like to walk with God, the good side, the bad side of it, um, or not the bad side of it, but like the hard side of it. Um, and, and I feel like we've been really great about just 
being brutally honest yeah. about this journey. To learn more about the Pena Vegas, check out their book, What If Love is the Point? Living for Jesus in a Self-Consumed World, wherever books are sold. Stay tuned to Michael Phillips' story after a brief message. Motherhood. It's a journey like no other, teeming with love, unparalleled dedication, and moments that pierce the very essence of your soul. It's a trek that demands to be celebrated, lauded, and embraced in its entirety. Celebrate the moms in your life this Mother's Day with two beautiful gift books, Jesus Calling for Moms by Sarah Young and Grace for the Moment for Moms by Max Licato. These heartfelt devotionals will remind the moms in your life just how special they are. Jesus Calling for Moms and Grace for the Moment for Moms are available now where all books are sold. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Our next guest is Michael Phillips, an education advocate, social entrepreneur, and chief engagement and fulfillment officer for the TD Jakes Foundation. Despite a negative narrative that was thrust upon him from a very early age, Michael explains how he changed this narrative for his own children and approached his adult life with the grounding and peace of his newfound faith. My name is Michael Phillips. I am chief engagement and fulfillment officer at the TD Jakes Foundation. I'm also an education advocate and social entrepreneur. School for me was difficult because I didn't go to a school uh, early on that really believed in me. Uh, and it, as a student, I was intellectually curious, but also at the same time disinterested in most of the learning of the day because I had to fight through so many deficit narratives that hung over my life, that was spoken into my life. Starting as early as the first grade, my teacher told me that I could never become, to put it in her words exactly, that I would never become a lawyer. It was my childhood dream to become an attorney because my grandmother's hero was Thurgood Marshall. And she also loved Perry Mason. And so as a little kid, I would sit in her lab watching Perry Mason and then listen to her tell stories about Thurgood Marshall. I went to school one day uh, for career day and did a little report on Thurgood Marshall and, and told the teacher stood in front of the class that I would go, was going to be an attorney one day. And unfortunately, 
uh, after I gave my presentation, the teacher told me that that wasn't likely to happen, that it would, in fact would never happen. And from, from first grade on, that deficit narrative about what I could and could not do continued to be spoken of my life by the adults, certain adults, teachers, administrators in my schooling. I was often told I would end up in jail because I couldn't sit still or if I had the proclivity to ask why something was the way that it was, I was told I was talking back and I couldn't display any type of agency with my own voice classroom uh, because it was often viewed as uh, being rebellious or, or belligerent. And so that those voices uh, came from a myriad of individuals, teachers, principals. Conversely, I also had some opposing voices of people who did believe in me, but the deficit narratives that were spoken of me were very weighty and hard to overcome, and they stuck. They really did. At 18 years old, uh, I found myself facing 30 years uh, in prison on what is called a RICO charge, racketeering and conspiracy. It's the type of charge they give to, you know, cartels, and mob bosses, and mob families. And so many things happened, uh, transpired in my life for me to get to this point. Uh, I was a promising athlete uh, who lost a scholarship because I was in a horrific car accident. And um, athletics and sports and basketball in particular was going to be my passport to the world. And uh, it didn't happen that way. And since that couldn't become reality for me anymore, then who was I going to be? Who was I? And I reverted back to those deficit narratives of what people spoke over my life and decided that's what I'll become. I'll just become a criminal. And so at 17 years old, I, I went into a partnership with a friend and we started to, to sell drugs massively, not just like on the corner, but just massive distribution. And that's what led to me being arrested at the age of 18. I turned myself in at 18 to only find out I was going to face these 30 years in prison. Everything flashes in front of you when you hear something like that. All of your decisions, all, all of the calamities that took place, the trauma that took place in your life, uh, that got you to this point that, that made you believe you had to make these choices and decisions. And you'll never forget, certainly, the eerie clank of a prison door when it shuts on you. Uh, almost sealing your fate. And I thought that my destiny was going to be written on those center block walls uh, and concrete floors. Uh, I thought this was going to be my life. And the sad thing about it was, was that I accepted it. I accepted it and just said, oh, this is where it's always going to end up anyway, so I'm not sure it's going to be accepted. But the power of it was that, you know, God had a different, different thought on the process. <laughs> and I wound up doing six months of pretrial detention 
and this one powerful, incredible day, uh, my life was altered and changed by a decision of a few people. And even though I had given in to uh, this moment, this moment was going to become the catalyst to move me to a completely different trajectory. And on a Sunday, correctional officer came to my cell and had told me that, you know, I needed to leave. And I was quite frightened because I didn't know what was going on. When I go in the federal building, we wind up in a judge's chamber. And when I walked into the judge's chamber, I obviously knew it was his office. And uh, But the peculiar thing that there was no name on his desk. And I thought that was peculiar. And they set me down. Judge walks in and he sits down in front of me and he wastes no time. He tells me that I have two options. And he says, you could either go to prison or you can go to college. Which one would you like to do? And uh, I wasted no time either. <laughs> and I said, I, I would love to go to college. And the powerful thing about the, the judge is that he didn't berate me. He didn't scold me for my past mistakes or anything. He just simply said I had an opportunity in a lifetime and that I should take every advantage of it. And that's exactly what I did. And so that was the beginning of, of my healing, of my rebirth, of my discovery of who I was. Going to Old Roberts University was culture shock for a kid growing up in Baltimore. And it, it took a long time for me to uh, come to a place where I was ready to be healed uh, from all of the uh, trauma and pain. Because when, when trauma goes un unacknowledged, tragedy often goes uninterrupted. And I had never acknowledged the trauma that I faced. I had never truly had anybody else acknowledge uh, a lot of that trauma, from my dad dying to, you know, seeing the violence around me to me selling drugs and all the things that uh, transpired in my life. I never dealt with that. I just stored it. And I was mostly just angry because I found being angry was easier than just being sad. I went back while on campus to doing some of the same old things that I was doing, uh, searching for where I was going to place my pain. And, you know, I didn't know where to put it. So I put it, my pain back into the things that I was accustomed to doing, um, you know, selling narcotics, because that for me gave me power. It gave me status. It gave me a sense of, of, of purpose, unfortunately. And I did that right at, right on campus. I went right back, even though I had this tremendous opportunity. It took some time. It took some time to transform my pain rather than transmit it. It took some time to become untethered from the things that I did as part of my identity. I was very loyal to my mistakes. And it took some time for me to realize those are just some things I did. That's not who I was. And when I finally came to a place where I was tired enough of wrestling with all of that, that pain, 
it was during the spring and there was this service put me square in front of dealing with the underpinnings of all of my pain, the fact that I was mad with God. And so I said to myself, if I have to go to church, which I didn't want to do, because going to church reminded me of, of losing my father. I said, if I, if I had to go to church, I, I want to be as numb as I possibly can. And I was still angry. And most importantly, I was angry with God. And the reason I was angry with God was because my father had died and there was no explanation given to me for that. And for the first time, I, I decided to actually smoke what I was selling. I had never done that before. And, and so that's how much I didn't want to feel God's presence. And I drank a, a fifth of Grey Goose vodka and I went on to church in that posture. Uh, and completely numb, uh, completely out of it. And they started to sing a hymn about 30 minutes into the service. And the hymn was, How Great Thou Art. And I was sober. And God's presence rushed over me like a wave, uh, so overwhelming that I was crying profusely. Uh, to the point where some of my friends who knew I had smoked thought that it was the marijuana. And I, I, I looked at them and I said, I'm sober. And his, God's presence was so overwhelmingly peaceful, it terrified me because I was in a deep relationship with the pain that I was in. And so I ran out of the chapel, literally. Uh, there are thousands of people in this room and I ran out and up the middle aisle because I was terrified of the peace I felt. <laughs> it, it was unusual. And I ran back to my dorm room crying, couldn't stop crying. I called my mother and my mother being my mother. I, lo I, lo I love that woman. She says, oh, baby, God's just dealing with you. And then she hung up. And it was now just me and God. And in that moment, I got down on my knees and finally lifted my hands uh, for the first time in forever and just said, I surrender. I'll never forget the day my son was born. I said, I've got to get my stuff together. And I didn't want my son to inherit my wounds. Uh, I didn't want to pass down my pain to him or my past troubles. And so I made sure that I parented him from the place where he would inherit the wisdom from my past experiences, but not even remotely have those experiences. And I think uh, while sharing simultaneously the history of that world that I came from and all of the struggles and and how he'll have the ability to stand on my shoulders and go farther and do more. When my son turned 13, I took him to my old neighborhood. I showed him everything. I took him to where I sold drugs. And I told him, these are the mistakes I made. This is where I got it wrong. And we had conversations about that. If you are providing the social and emotional support 
mechanisms for a child, meaning you know where that child comes from. You understand their culture. You understand their background. Um, you know, you understand that maybe they're, you know, a child of four and um, living with grandma and, you know, gra- grandma didn't get, you know, all of the educational benefits of today. And so she's doing her best. But that's 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 their their experience. And I, I think uh, with a focus on a deep focus on uh, some of those things for children in our communities will completely change the game for our young people. And so instead of a culture that says what's wrong with you, it will become a culture of what happened to you or how are you doing? <laughs> right. And there was an incident where a child was sent home because they didn't have a pencil and it, it made news and headlines. And the child had just lost their father to gun violence. And the teacher berated the child because they didn't have a pencil. Those sort of things is what I'm talking about, right? That child needed that emotional support. That child needed a counselor, not a cop. Uh, that, that child needed to know uh, that the community is there for them. And without that awareness, without that emotional support, we really will do our children a disservice. The disciplinary practices that are in our schools that put our children squarely in front of the criminal justice system at early ages is what they call the school to prison pipeline. And so what helps the school to prison pipeline not exist starts within our schools and it starts with our disciplinary practices. And so instead of zero tolerance policies, we ought to be focusing on restorative practices that when there is a disruption to community from the act of an individual, we need to figure out how to restore that individual. Now, I'm not talking about cases of severe violence. I'm talking about the normal tendencies of children trying to master learning and also self-discovery at the same time as they go through adolescence. And unfortunately, in many of our communities, especially for black and brown children, the policies of discipline typically puts our children in harm's way of a judicial system. And that needs to change. Right now, we are spending per juvenile detainee in some states as high as $96,000 per juvenile a year. We could reallocate those resources to provide all the educational supports for them. So the everyday individual must first simply become conscious, become aware of some of these problems within our society so that when a young person articulates them to you, you can have empathy to, first of all, listen <laughs> and to understand the world that they are coping with. Secondly, you can always advocate. You can always advocate. And that, that takes shape in many forms, making sure that the disciplinary practices in your school reflects 
restorative practices, regardless of if it's your child or not. Because uh, at the end of the day, what if it was your child? I use the term at promise rather than at risk. Maya Angelou said it best, words are things, right? And uh, what we call our children, how we phrase the language around them really does matter. And so to say that, that children are at risk seems as if they are they are doomed seems as if they're the 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 expectation of of who they can become of what they can accomplish will be nothing more than a failure right and and so to reverse that stigma that label placed upon them we need to say that they are at promise and in terms of the gospel <laughs> um, that's what it's all about, <laughs> restoration. And, and so uh, we need that reflective uh, in not only in our society, but, you know, that's going to, if it's going to be reflective in our society, then it must be reflective in our institutions. When those toxic thoughts come into your mind, you can capture can pull them down, don't let them reside, and have any room uh, in your mental real estate. Jesus Listens, September 16. Merciful Jesus, when I'm going through a dark time, an especially hard time, it's easy for me to project that darkness into the future. The longer I struggle with adverse circumstances, the darker the way ahead looks, and the harder it is for me to imagine myself walking along bright paths again. It's so tempting to just give up and let misery become my companion. But I know that you are my constant companion, Jesus. So help me cling to you. Lord, trusting that you are able to turn my darkness into light. Instead of focusing on the circumstances that are weighing me down, I need to look to you. Remembering that you are continually with me. You hold me by my right hand, encouraging me to walk by faith through the darkness, through eyes of faith. I can anticipate brighter times ahead and praise you for them as I walk worshipfully with you through the darkness. You enable me to see the first gleam of dawn on the path before me. Please help me preserve along this path, trusting that the dim light will gradually shine brighter and brighter to the full light of day. In your spectacular name, amen. To learn more about Michael Phillips' story, check out his book, Wrong Lanes Have Right Turns, anywhere books are sold. If you'd like to hear more stories about hope and healing, check out our interview with Kristen Smedley. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with scholar Amy Kenny, who opens up about her experiences being a Christian and having a disability. As people tried to pray away her wheelchair, she opens up about how that made her feel, 
like she wasn't accepted for who she was as created by God. She provides a unique insight and perspective into how we all can become more inclusive to disabled people in our places of faith. As a disabled kid, I was often told, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly, that if I believed enough or had enough faith, I would be not disabled. And that just doesn't make sense with the truth that we know that all of us are made in the image of God. And there's no caveat there saying, unless you're disabled. And I think I just had the audacity to believe it. Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.